millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Still, that doesn't help residents like Sherry Hunter or Byron Florence. They live a few streets away, and the government can't formally identify which company is responsible for the lead contamination in their part of the neighborhood. For NPR News, I'm Nick Jansen in East Chicago, Indiana. You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the head of the Mississippi Medical Association on what the state could do to get health care to those who don't have it. Yes, of course, we have to look at, at, at medical coverage. Of course, whether it be through Medicaid expansion and other means, of course, we're in support of that. But Let's not lose sight of the fact there's a crisis with our Department of Health at the moment. Then, working out the details on school consolidation in Chickasaw County. Later, genetically engineering mosquitoes to fight disease. Could it be our best hope? And finding out what that fit or where that fish you had for supper came from. It's not always where you think. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Medical Association is endorsing expanded medical coverage for more people in the state, but the association failed to support Medicaid expansion at its recent annual meeting. About 20% of Mississippians don't have health insurance, with African Americans making up most of that number. Governor Phil Bryant opposes Medicaid expansion, as do many legislators. Some in favor of expansion say by not doing this, the state is effectively turning down more than $14 billion from the the federal government over the course of a decade. We spoke with Dr. Lee Volters, president of the Mississippi Medical Association and a neurologist in Gulfport. He says the association originally called for Medicaid expansion at its recent annual meeting, then backed off that position. You know, we're very concerned as physicians in Mississippi about uh, covering all of our population in Mississippi. And we realize there's a shortfall and that uh, many people uh, uninsured, poor people, working poor, that don't have insurance. And so we're looking for every way we can and looking on every avenue to see if we, if we can find a way with the legislature to expand medical coverage. Now, the original resolution, I'm sure you know, and this is what has caused some concern on in certain parties in the, in the state, is that we called for Medicaid expansion. And that was originally included and then removed, is that right? Well, that's part of the democratic process. This was at the House of Delegates, which is our annual session, and there were two resolutions, both to do with expanding Medicaid or medical coverage. And, you know, there was a vigorous debate and discussion, and um, the House of Delegates came together at the end, and, you know, the committee 
at that time, you know, her testimony from a variety of, of people, uh, physicians, delegates, supporting medical, Medicaid expansion, um, whether by the Affordable Care Act or other means. And, um, you know, a lot of, of course, we've all discussed many times the uh, benefits of improving access to health care, particularly in rural areas uh, of the state. We know about the positive economic impact um, that expansion of Medicaid can bring. Uh, creation of jobs, of course, we don't know all about these things. But you know, there's the political realities um, uh, present, and we do appreciate and understand the tremendous pressures that the legislature and the governor is off. You know, is under. You know, in this current fiscal environment, one has to be responsible fiscally, not only presently, but for the, that any type of program has to be sustainable over the. Uh, future economic landscapes. We we support expanded access to medical care for those in need. How does that happen? That's what we really want to do. And I think that's what expansion of medical coverage means. We we want to sit down with the uh, legislator, with the Department of in, State Department of Insurance, with all the interested parties, and and see what. What is possible? You know, it's all very well talking about Medicaid expansion, but as physicians, who is going to treat these these patients? And this is a very important question. The fact that one has health care insurance does not equate to access, particularly of primary health care in Mississippi. You know, Mississippi already has the lowest number of physicians per capita than any other state in the nation. You know, Mississippi State University have, have studies which suggest that probably up to half of primary care physician offices currently are not accepting new Medicaid patients. The, the position of the Mississippi State Medical Association has always been that we support uh, Medicaid, we, ex- we support uh, coverage of our patients, of our citizens in any way possible. And we will continue to do that. And we, encourage our, we encourage our members to participate in, in Medicaid in, in any fashion we can. But, you must you know, have to look to your own uh, association, though, to to face the fact that there are so few doctors, for instance, in the Mississippi Delta. We are very aware of this at the Mississippi State Medical and have been for years. And we've done everything we can to encourage that. You know, we have a rural scholarship program now that's funded from our foundation, from the Mississippi State Medical. We work very closely with UMC, and we do everything we can to encourage our young physicians. So, of course, we encourage to be members of Mississippi State Medical. We, we try and recruit them as medical students, as residents, as fellows, and we do everything we can to encourage them to take positions in in the rural areas, and we try to encourage them financially as well. We've talked with Mike Cheney, the insurance commissioner, many times, and he is always trying to get insurers, more insurers, into the state. Are there other ways short of that to get more people covered? I think we have to sit down with the, with the legislators and get all interested parties to sit down. You know, what about our other programs other than Medicare? What about the CHIPS program? Things like that. Is there any way we can expand that? Is there any additional funding? Is there any way you know, that we can tap those sorts of things? I'm not sure. You know, we're trying now to set up meetings. We have, you know, we have a meeting with, with the lieutenant governor later on this month. I'm sure we'll be meeting, hopefully, with the governor's office soon, with the legislative leaders. We've got to explore every possible avenue that we can. And, you know, and we're talking about Medicaid expansion, but I would be remiss if I didn't tell you while I'm talking to you about the health care of, of, of Mississippians, about there's a crisis going on with the Department of Health. 
You know, our public health funding is at a crisis point now, and this is, and this has a huge impact on the health of Mississippi. Let alone expanding medical coverage. You know, what about you know um, an, an inadequate and slow response to disease outbreaks and epidemics, uh, a slower response to public uh, services, health in restaurants, in daycare, nursing homes, all these things. You know. What about if a hurricane hits or tornadoes and floods? All these things that the public department of health are involved in are being impacted and threatened now because of, because of decreased funding. So, yes, of course, we have to look at, at, at medical coverage. Of course, whether it be through Medicaid expansion and other means, of course, we're in support of that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's a crisis with our department of health at the moment. You know, higher teen pregnancy and infant mortality rates are directly impacted by our public health department, uh, un- higher rates of unmanaged chronic illness and obesity. All these things are on the table now because of uh, cuts, uh, budget cuts in the, de- in the Department of Health. Dr. Right. Lee Volters is the president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Dr. Volters, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate you. Up next, working out the details on school consolidation in Chickasaw County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo for Southern Remedy. Each Wednesday, we answer your calls on health issues of interest to you. They range from medical questions on kids, young adults, baby boomers, and seniors. Whatever you need to know. Join me for Southern Remedy this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Members of a commission examining consolidation of three school districts in Chickasaw County say they have reached an impasse. The commission, created by lawmakers in April, was tasked with drafting a recommendation on how to best consolidate the Houston, Okalona, and Chickasaw County school districts. But after only a couple of meetings, district representatives were unable to come to a consensus. Daniel Haranga is the president of the Houston School Board. He tells MP. PB's Paul Boger, Houston should have a majority on the new board. We have three separate municipal school, well, two municipal school districts and one county school district. In all of our meetings, our primary discussion has been about representation of the board. We did come to a vote uh, on in the second meeting, um, a unanimous vote, but after the, the meeting, I think we all wanted to send a vote, and so that's what we did today, and we could not come up with a solution for that on how how to do that we really our motivation is that um that our district not be affected uh we were told that um districts are combined because of a low enrollment uh, low tax base and low scores and um our county don't really reflect the same consolidations that have taken place. We do have low, low enrollment. We do have low tax base. But the scores have not been as low as a lot. We have one district um, in our county that um, has had a, a failing history. Uh, the rest of us haven't. So we would rather be left alone. And so, But we tried to come up with some type of um, coming together opinion and wasn't able to do that. 
So you don't think that the, the three school districts need to be consolidated right now? No, the Chickasaw County has always been a very divided county. The creek that runs through the middle of it is significant. And um, two county seats and, and, and a, lot of, um, a lot of disparity between the two ends of the county and not hungry to combine in that. MPB's Paul Boger with Daniel Herringa, president of the Houston School Board. Dexter Green is superintendent of Okolona Schools. He tells Paul Boger the big issues start with the demographic makeup of Chickasaw County. We're trying to make sure that we do what's fair and equitable for all students in Chickasaw County. Uh, the big issues that you guys may not be aware of is the configuration of our county. Uh, Okolona is perhaps 20, 25 minutes, uh, 20, 25 miles away from Houston, as well as Hawker. And in order to have a consolidated school district, no one wants to have a centrally located central office. No one wants to have a centrally located uh, high school whereby all students can partake in a new consolidated school district. And so uh, and with the uh, Houston school district, they're doing well as far as preparing their students academically. So is uh, Chickasaw uh, School District as well as in Okolona. And so, well, with the configuration of our county, we think it's in our best interest to remain a separate unitary school district. Part of the topic today was talking about school governance, obviously. No one really wants to seem to give up power, if you will. Uh, Everybody thinks they should be their own school district at this point. Oklahoma believes at this point that they should have two members on the school board versus just the one that they would be guaranteed, right? Uh, Yes, sir. We would like for our school board in a new consolidated Chickasaw County school district, it should be representative of the population. Uh, we have 60% uh, Caucasian, 40% minority. And so we're not asking for a majority. We're just asking that at least two uh, members on the school board be of minority descent. MPB's Paul Boger with Dexter Green, superintendent of the Okolona School District, on the efforts of, to consolidate Chickasaw County schools. Up next, genetically engineering mosquitoes to fight disease. Could it be our best hope? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio is your voice for Mississippi. If you or your community has an event coming up and you'd like help spreading the word, send us an email. You've got mail. To PSA at mpbonline.org. Coming up this season on MPB's At Issue. What should customers be on the hook for? What were the mistakes made? The customer should not be paying for mistakes. That little bit of virus is enough to make you really, really sick and in some cases kill people. All lives do matter, but black lives are the ones that are being systematically gunned down. Join us for At Issue, Mississippi's only statewide TV news program, every Friday at 7.30 p.m., starting September 9th on MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. So far this year, 19 people in Mississippi have been diagnosed with the mosquito-borne West Nile virus, including one death. 20 people in the state also have been diagnosed with the Zika virus, all of them contracted by traveling to Zika-affected countries. When it comes to battling mosquito-borne illnesses, could the best hope be in the lab? Professors at the University of Southern Mississippi are hosting an open forum on that subject tonight at the school. MPB's Ezra Wall spoke with Donald Yee, a biologist at USM. He says genetic research is a natural tool in fighting mosquito-borne illnesses. Overall, we have a relatively limited number of possible uh, mechanisms by which we can control wild mosquito populations to hope to control disease. The historic uh, 
techniques have always been either reliant on reducing where the mosquitoes can actually breed or within the past 50, 60, 70 years, the application of particular pesticides, things like DDT and other uh, chemicals that can be sprayed somewhat uh, indiscriminately into the environment with the hopes that they'll reduce adult populations or larval populations uh, through that application. Uh, the way that genetic engineering is different is it's very targeted uh, towards either mosquitoes specifically or a particular mosquito uh, more specifically. So in the case of a lot of our mosquito-borne diseases, there are only a small number of animals that are capable of transmitting the virus among human beings. There are uh, 3,500 species of mosquitoes across the world, but there's only maybe a dozen or two that are actually important for the majority of human uh, medical conditions that are, are vectored by mosquitoes. So because of that, the idea of physically taking and manipulating the genetic sequence of an animal to somehow use that to our advantage to reduce those populations and thereby reduce the number of mosquitoes that are available to transmit diseases in nature is a relatively new advancement in our sort of fight against mosquito-borne disease. So practically speaking, how, do, how does that work? You, in, in, a, in some sort of a lab environment, you would genetically engineer mosquitoes, which are basically the same species as the ones who can communicate these dangerous diseases, but make them somehow unable to do so? Sure. So the basic premise and the, the approach that is being currently developed and, and tested is to manipulate male mosquitoes so that way they carry in their normal genome, so it wouldn't change the species at all. Um, it would, they would simply contain a version of a gene that confers lethality to their offspring. So you can imagine a male mosquito flying out in the environment who has been modified in this way and carries this lethal gene. When he mates with a female who is a wild female, uh, her offspring uh, get fertilized or the eggs get fertilized when the offspring are born, so it essentially reduces the populations through the use of this lethal gene that is passed from the male to the female. Practically speaking, what this means is you have to manipulate the genome of this animal in the laboratory, rear up millions of male mosquitoes that carry this lethal gene, and then release those in a very targeted way in the environment so as to have the sort of greatest effect on the populations you're interested in controlling. So this does carry the burden of having to essentially produce thousands, if not millions, of male mosquitoes that carry this trait. But the upside is that, obviously, after a very short time, you're going to see relatively substantial reductions in the overall populations. And this might be a good place to note that only the females bite people. Uh, and that's because the blood is actually used for the females to produce their batch of eggs. So release, releasing millions of male mosquitoes actually has relatively no consequence in terms of disease simply because the males aren't interested in taking blood meals from people. Well, it's a very interesting uh, discussion, and uh, there will be a panel of experts weighing the pros and cons, and the public is welcome to uh, to attend and uh See if you can get answers to all your questions about whether we should be engineering 
mosquitoes. That's uh, going to be part of the Science Cafe at the University of Southern Mississippi. It'll take place uh, tonight uh, at 6 o'clock on the campus of the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg at the Polymer Science Auditorium. Dr. Donald Yee is the Associate Professor of Biological Sciences at USM. Dr. Yee, thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, finding out where that fish you had for supper came from. It's not always where you think. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. There's not a better address in the world. One World Trade Center. You don't need to say New York. You don't need to say zip code. You know what it is. How have developers balanced respect for the dead of 9-11 with taking advantage of some of the most expensive property in the world? Amari Shapiro, Consideration versus Commerce at the New World Trade Center, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Where did your flounder come from? Unless you caught it yourself, it's sometimes hard to know. That's because seafood fraud is a global concern that reaches right to your dinner table. The nonprofit group Oceana released its annual seafood fraud report today, giving an update on how to fight for safe, ethically harvested seafood. MPB Sid Scott spoke with Kimberly Warner, a scientist for Oceana. She says tracking seafood fraud globally is a tough job, but progress is being made every year. Oceana has been looking at seafood fraud since 2011, and we've been reviewing, conducting our own tests and also reviewing the literature around the globe to see how prevalent seafood fraud is. Um, and with this new updated uh, global seafood fraud review and map, uh, interactive Google map, we're showing where Oceana's putting seafood fraud on the map for people to see uh, how pervasive the problem is. And also that um, there seems to be some emerging evidence coming out of the European Union that there are some solutions to this problem. So um, it's really important to be able to trace uh, seafood and give consumers information about their seafood uh, so they know that what they're eating is safe and honestly labeled so and in, legal. And legal. And are you looking at all aspects of fraud, like the quality of what people consume, down all the way back, tracking it to how it's farmed? Our seafood mislabeling and is focused on species substitution. So it's your, you've ordered Gulf shrimp, but what you got instead was a farmed uh, imported shrimp. And that is a big deal in America because we've had, through free trade and globalization, we've had uh, influxes of of shrimp and fish and other seafood products from other countries. And mislabeling happens at every step of the process? Absolutely. Is- Most of the studies have been done at the retail, like the grocery store or restaurant level, but we've, we have 20% of our studies documented at other steps, all steps of the supply chain. Um, there have been um, cases documented on our in our uh, report and in our um, interactive map where domestic seafood processors have taken foreign shrimp and relabeled it as domestic caught and sold it that way. So you and I know that following the the oil spill and hurricanes, there were all sorts of trouble 
getting gulf shrimp and other seafood that people would really have confidence in and and want to buy. There was a gulf seafood trace program that was instituted. In fact, Mississippi had a um, a campaign on every shrimp has a tail back in 2013, which was, I think, very successful. When people have confidence and, and know where their seafood comes from and get, can be guaranteed that what they're getting is a real gulf shrimp, it really helps restore confidence in the seafood market, and it, it, it helps keep honest fishermen in business. I mean, people are celebrating Gulf seafood now because there was traceability that allowed people to be sure that the shrimp they were eating came from safe areas and was what it was. <laughs> you know, it was really a Gulf seafood item and not, not a foreign import. Kimberly Warner is with Oceana talking to us about Oceana's Global Seafood Fraud Report. I appreciate your taking time with us. Thank you very much. Coming up after Mississippi edition, it's Fix It 101, Everyday Tech and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.